0: After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people, chief priests the teachers of the law he asked them where the christ was to be born in bethlehem of Judea, they replied for this is what the prophet has written but you bethlehem in the land of judah are by no means least among the rulers of judah for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people israel then herod called the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you have found him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over a place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child in his mo- with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and, pres- and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route.
1: Well, this week uh, I was uh, very much shocked as I was uh, sitting down in the morning with my morning coffee overlooking uh, the city of Palma, a beautiful sunrise, blue sky, no clouds, and it was almost like it was a summer day for me as a German. And I was shocked as I was taking out my journal and noted down the day and found out that we're already mid-December, and I haven't felt the Christmas bird yet. And I was a little bit shocked by by myself that we're approaching Christmas. We actually have this beautiful time of the year. We call it the Advent season as a preparation that leads up to this wonderful evening, the Christmas Eve time where we come together in church and where we celebrate the birth of our Savior. And and I've been missing it. And it's mid-December and I'm not in the Christmas mood even though my wife is trying her very best in our home to make everything look like Christmas and feel like Christmas. I was shocked at myself that even though I have been a Christian for many years and I've been part of this tradition of getting ready for Christmas and celebrating the Advent season that I, even as a believer, can miss the importance of this very special time. And I wrote down in my journal why I think I'm missing out on Christmas and the Advent season for myself. I, I kind of, as I was thinking through that, I, I came up with four reasons why I'm, I'm missing Christmas or why I've missed Christmas in the past. The first one is, of course, number one, because I'm too busy. My life is filled with so many things that I want to do, especially at the end of the year, why I want to just. Uh, some things off my to-do list I want to finish the year strong and there's just so much things that just keep me distracted not focusing on Christmas number two what keeps me distracted from Christmas is that I'm too worried there's things that occupy my mind of things that I'm anxious about things where I feel like I'm not where I or the situation or the project or the company or the ministry is at, and it just occupies my soul that I don't get into this Christmas feeling. Number three, I would say that I've been too lazy. It actually takes a little bit of effort to concentrate on Christmas. And I myself can become too lazy in my spirit and feel Like, oh, I know it all, I've seen it all, I understand it, so I don't need to take the extra effort to get into this mood. And number four is I'm too proud. I'm too proud. Really, that is uh, one of the reasons why I've probably messed up too much in the past, and uh, I assume some of you feel the same way. It takes a humble spirit to experience Christmas takes a humble spirit and that's why I'm so thankful for this morning and I have to say especially I'm thankful for the Christmas songs we've been singing. In some churches we only sing these Christmas carols on Christmas Eve and I'm really happy that here at church we celebrate these uh, Christmas carols throughout the Advent seasons and even as I was singing this morning I felt like I need this for my soul. I need this for, for my own Reflection. I need this for my own peace of mind and peace of heart to just have this hour here together with you as a church and just really get into the mode and the time of Christmas. So as I've been preparing for this sermon here this morning, I've been praying that all of us, whether it's our busyness, whether it's our anxiousness, whether it's our laziness or us not being humble enough this morning is different this morning here doing the service is somehow set apart the biblical term for set apart is the word holy whenever we talk about something being holy we actually mean it's it is set apart for something special I actually pray that this is a set apart service a holy service A moment for us to reflect and pray and experience Christmas. So let me say a prayer before we continue. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning and that you've dedicated an hour and a time and a space and a room and a facility for us to come together here this morning and and celebrate this Advent season correctly. From the bottom of my heart, I want to be listening to your words this morning. I want to enter the story of the Nativity story. I want to enter the story that you want to write within my own life and within the life of my family. So Heavenly Father, I ask you that you open up my heart and my mind to receive the precious gift that you want to deliver this morning. We are getting ready to deliver gifts for Christmas Eve, but the most wonderful gift is your presence. So please, Heavenly Father, we invite you into this service. Amen. So I've chosen this text out of Matthew chapter 2 that our Pastor Raphael has just read to us. It is a wonderful story that is most vividly reported in the Gospel of Matthew, which in English is called the visit of the Magi, the adoration of the Magi. Now, if you're from another country, this word Magi actually sounds a little bit strange to you. In fact, I was talking to my family. We're from Germany this morning, and I said, I'm going to speak on the adoration of the Magi. And they were all like, what exactly is that? It's a, it's a strange word, Magi. It is a, a term found here only in this passage. It is a description of some wise men and some traditions have actually termed them to have been kings of far away countries. The Christian tradition actually says that Melchior came from Persia, Gaspar from India and Balthazar from Arabia. Three wise men or the Magi or three foreign kings make their way to Bethlehem make their way to Bethlehem because they are following a star that they saw in the sky, especially at night. They could see a star at night and they packed up their belongings and left in order to discover what can be found in Bethlehem. I've noted down a few things that I think we can learn from this story, and the first one that I want to mention is is I think the Magi can teach teach us that we can live life with curiosity. We can live life with curiosity. So I'm entering into this story of these three wise men packing up their things in faraway countries in order to embark on a journey following a star, a sign in the sky. I can't cannot not notice that these must have been men of curiosity. How often have we all seen stars in the sky and have not packed up our things and have gone and have checked out why exactly are these stars aligned. But of course the history of humanity is full of absolutely fascinating stories of adventurers looking at the stars, embarking on some journeys, some ship journeys, especially here from Spain. We know of Christopher Columbus, who made his way following the stars to discover new lands. And this is actually the heart of this this story here that we find in Matthew chapter 2. There were some wise men, and they were wise. They were curious. They wanted to see what is, this, what is this bright star there in the sky? What, where is this star leading us? I love the curiosity behind that and I have to point that out in verse 2. The magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who was, has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. We saw the star when it rose and we've packed up our things to go and worship him. Curiosity is oftentimes the beginning of a journey with God. I've heard Raphael a few times quote this uh, famous man, Albert Einstein, where he says, there are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. There are only two ways on how to live life. Either nothing is a miracle that we see around us or everything is a miracle that is around us. How many stars are out there and we see them, yes, as some light in the middle of the night but how much more can they be if we really explore them? I want to show you a painting, a very famous painting of this scene by Leonardo da Vinci. It's called The Adoration of the Magi. It is a true masterpiece of its time. It was painted around 1481 in the city of Florence in Italy. It's on display today at the Uffizi Galleries. And it's actually a a big painting. It's, it's, uh, It's oil on wood, not on canvas, but oil on wood. It's two and a half meters by two and a half meters. You can't miss it when you go to the Uffizi Museums there in Florence. It's a true masterpiece because at that time, the level of detail of the human body was totally uncommon to be found in paintings. Leonardo da Vinci, the reason why he became so incredibly famous is because he was an endlessly curious man and painter. He studied the human body in so much detail, the different movements, the different functions, the the different muscles, the different bones that we have on our body, and he tried to put that on canvas or on wood in his paintings. Now the interesting thing about this specific painting is that it is unfinished. He did not finish it. Some believe that it is because he had to flee up to Milan or he moved and moved up to Milan. Others think as often happened with Leonardo da Vinci paintings, he was just so meticulous about the details that he would always go back and draw some, some more, a little finer, some more, some more elements within the scene. He was not just a painter, as you know, but he was also a developer, a, a, someone who would construct, who would do mathematical uh, calculations, who would do um, architectural drawings, who would do science and technology, a polymath, curiosity or even within our human being and our journey of faith. I want to tell you about a friend of mine. His name is Pravish and I brought you a picture of my friend Pravish. A couple of months ago I I met with him here in the city of Florence and we actually went together to the Uffizi Museums and looked at the adoration of the Magi. Next day we had breakfast and Ravish is from Chennai, India, he's a very successful businessman uh, from from Chennai now and, and we sat down over breakfast and I had asked him about his story, his background. And he told me his story, how he had grown up in a culture full of religions. India is full of many religions. There are no atheists in India, everyone is religious in India different religions, different influences. He grew up in the city of Chennai, a busting city with lots of noise, with lots of traffic, with lots of people, lots of colors, very hectic. He grew up in a household with a father who was very influential and powerful, even within the government. When he um, spoke up in union labor meetings, he was the one that everyone was looking to, kind of a patriarch in the household. Pravish shared with me the story that he did not grow up with any specific kind of faith because his father was against it. He told me that probably there was some hurtful thing in the past that he had experienced, some disappointment, some, something that the church had done or something that he had heard or some pain he did not know as a son growing up. But somehow watching his dad being influential and as as a business person, at the same time being surrounded by all these different influences of religions, he became curious as a child all by himself to embark on a journey of discovery, on a curiosity journey of discovering his own faith. He started reading the scriptures. As we were having breakfast, he told me he was about 13 years of age when he started reading the Bible. He wasn't accustomed to that by his family. His mother wasn't reading the Scriptures. Uh, His father wasn't reading the Scriptures. In fact, he actually felt like they'd be very hostile against him embarking on any kind of more spiritual, specifically Christian journey. But he could not help himself. He started reading all by himself at night when no one could see him, his Bible. And then there was this New Year's Eve when he was going from 13 to 14 years of age. New Year's Eve, while lots of people were out in the streets kind of welcoming the New Year, celebrating, he as a young teenager felt drawn to also be at home and to take time to read the Bible and read the scriptures. And the story goes that he's in his room reading by himself. When his father comes home, it's about 1.30 at night. His father had been out celebrating. He comes back home and he finds his teenager son reading the scriptures. And his dad gets furious absolutely has an outburst of anger and starts shouting at his son over reading a book. In his anger, the father says something that has burned itself into the heart and mind of Pravish. And even now, as he is an adult man, he can so vividly see this image of his father in anger and outburst, shouting at him and telling him as a 13-year-old. As of this day, I am no longer your father. I reject you as a son. As you can imagine, for a teenager to be hearing these words from his dad just shakes him at the core of his being. He's just a curious boy. He's just looking for some answers. He's just trying to figure out what is this life all about. So in his tears, as his father has left the room after this declaration, he continues reading, and his eyes fall on the next verse in in the Psalms where he's been reading just before his dad entered the room. And now, if you have a Bible, I want you to open up your Bible. If you have an iPhone, you may use your iPhone now. Pravish is sitting there on New Year's Eve after his father has just left him and forsaken him as a son And he had been reading Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2. And he had just finished verse 6 and continues with verse 7. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son today. I have become your father." This is the very next verse that Pravish reads after his earthly father had just rejected him. And if he'd been crying up to this point over the rejection of his earthly father, tears start streaming down his face as he, as a young boy, all by himself, in the middle of the night, only with a Bible in his hand or on his lap, finds out that God, his heavenly Father, declares, You are my son. Today, I have become your father. I asked you to take out your Bible, Um, if you have a pen, you need to put the name of Plavich next to that verse, because that's what I did. When he told me that story a few months ago, I had tears down my eyes when I I heard the story. Because how often have I talked with people who feel that at some point they were rejected by their parents? And specifically, I've heard more than one story of people feeling the rejection of their father. And to hear a story of an adult man who points back to the blessings of his life, to that night where even though he was rejected, in his grace and in his mercy, his heavenly father reached out and just embraced him and touched him and touched his soul there in the middle of the night. That evening, that night, he became a Christian. That evening, that night, even though he had never heard a sermon in his life, he had never gone to church, he had never been part of a Bible study, he had only read the scriptures by himself, and he had felt the hand of God on his heart and soul, and it was so clear that he would never ever in his life reject his heavenly father again, but that he would walk in the footsteps of the scriptures and learn and study more about what it means to have a heavenly father that watches over him. I said that what we can learn from the Magi, following the stars, following the signs, sometimes... Signs can be words in a book. Sometimes a star can be not just an outside star up in the sky, but a verse that we find as we sit down and read, and all of a sudden we feel like that verse is leading me somewhere. That miracle that I experience, that that wonder that I see, is taking me to some place deeper. It's taking me actually to a Heavenly Father that loves me and that declares his fatherhood over my life. Number two, second thing I think we can learn from the magi is that I think they allowed yourself, themselves to be overtaken by joy. If you look at the back in Matthew chapter two, uh, verse ten, it says, "When they saw the star, when they saw the star, when they saw the miracle." Over Bethlehem they were overjoyed as the wise men came and made their way from the far away lands to the manger they saw the star over Bethlehem and it says that they became overfilled with joy they found joy in a very unexpected place you guys all know the Christmas story it wasn't a star over a palace it was a star over a manger They found joy in the midst of very violent times. Everything around the Christmas story is violence. Even though sometimes we depict it as this romantic scene, everything around the Christmas manger was full of violence. Herod was a king who ruled over Israel and who had children slaughtered if the families did not conform to his ways of power. Now that did not distract the Magi, the kings from the faraway countries to find joy in the midst of violence. They found joy in the midst of a long journey. They found joy in the midst of a place, let's be honest, that was stinky and dirty. A manger wasn't a romantic place for a king to be born. I want to show you a picture of a friend of mine. His name is Shadi. This picture was taken back in July. I was in the US and Shadi lives in Dallas, Texas. And, and uh, I was coming through town and uh, had messaged him. And he said, Chris, I would love to invite you for a nice dinner, a nice steak in a nice restaurant overlooking the city. And as the steak arrived to our place, I took a picture. And this is not like a fake picture. <laughs> Here, let me let me say, it's not like I said, I'm going to take a picture. Shadi, please, you know, please look funny. But he was so excited as he was looking at our food for the night, this great steak that they had prepared for us. The reason I want to show you this picture is because I'm, I'm involved and I, I talk to a lot of business people. Shadi, by the way, is a, is a tech entrepreneur in Dallas, Texas. His family comes from Gaza. I've been messaging the last few weeks with him on and off. He's a Christian, a Palestinian Christian from Gaza. Uh, just a couple of days ago he messaged me and that's why I thought of the picture. Just a couple of days he messaged how, how he's working with his wife, they're trying to get some human, uh, humanitarian aid and to, to, to some of his family who are entrapped there and, and can't leave. The reason I wanted to show you this picture is because I, I talk with a lot of business Owners and entrepreneurs and very affluent, successful families and bu- business people. And, and oftentimes, I don't find like they can experience joy. And I don't know, this may sound a little bit strange because in our normal, normal logic, we kind of feel like if people are successful and, you know, if they become affluent, then, you know, there's, there's joy Well, that's not the case. I've I've talked to many, many outwardly looking successful business people who do not have joy and who don't allow joy to enter into their lives. Even though they may have some money on their accounts, they they still are very anxious, they are still very worried, they still are very frightened. They want more. Greed has overtaken them. What I love about the story of the Magi is they follow the star. They are overjoyed as it stops over this manger. They are overfilled with joy. They they let joy enter their hearts even though they are kings, even though they are wise, even though they are affluent. They let themselves be overjoyed in the moment. Number three, the third thing I think we can learn from the story of the Magi is there's nothing more powerful than to bow down before Jesus. Now that is why it's such a powerful story. They make the long journey, they follow a star out of curiosity they make the journey and then as they walk into this dirty filthy stinky not good smelling manger they see a little baby their reaction is that they fall down on their knees and they worship the baby they worship king jesus what an image Kings bowing down before the King of Kings. Remember years ago, I I was pastoring a church in Frankfurt, Germany. And one day, a man uh, by the name of Gerrit called me up and said he would like to meet me at the church because he'd like to talk to me. Now, I had known Gerrit for quite some time. We had an evening service back then at the church, and he would always be coming to the evening service, not the morning service, because most of the days he would be working throughout the day, so he could only join us in the evening. Gerrit was working in Frankfurt for the Bundesbank, the Federal Reserve Bank of of Germany. We have uh, a big uh, bank office there in the the heart of the center of Frankfurt. And he was a security man, so he literally did not work in the bank, but he worked outside to secure the bank. So he was, in mild terms, a very uh, strong-built man. Very, very, very tall, full of muscles. In in his free time, he would always go to the gym. He would exercise, and he was specialized in martial arts. He knew how to fight. So sometimes I felt like, if he's in church, I'm safe. (laughs) Nothing can happen if he's around. So we met at church, and... As soon as we st- sat down and started talking, he said, Chris, I am absolutely restless. I don't know what's happening at the moment in my life, but I'm absolutely restless. I cannot find sleep at night. I, I, I try not to drink alcohol because I've, I've seen the tendency if I, that I drink in order to sleep, but I try not to do that. But then basically all night I kind of... Look at look look at the ceiling, and I I I I have such terrible unrest. And quite honestly, Chris, I've tried everything under the sky to get rid rid of this restlessness. I've I want to find some peace. I've I've tried yoga, and I've done some meditations. I've I've done more sports and exercise to power me out in the evening, but I cannot find any peace. Um, in I I. I, I want to end that. I, I, I want to find a solution. And sometimes when I come to church, I feel like there's a glimpse of hope. There, there, there is something perhaps out there connected to the story of God and the story of Jesus that could perhaps give me that peace. So as he shared very openly with me, I, I said, well, let them, let's talk about the story of Jesus and I kind of, you know, grabbed, grabbed the Bible and, and, and I quickly went with him in a, in a, in a speedy way. I went through the, through the story of, of Jesus and, of course, the story of Christmas. But I didn't end with Christmas. I talked about Jesus' life. And then, of course, I got to Easter and the cross and how Jesus was on the cross. And as soon as I start talking about the cross, he stopped me and said, Pastor, the cross does not work. I've tried that. And I'm like, What? What do you mean the cross does not work? And then out of his jacket, he pulls a crucifix. And it was a big one. It was like that tall. It wasn't like a small one that you hang around your neck. He pulls out a crucifix and puts it there in front of me and said, I've been carrying this cross for 30 years in my pocket. It does not work. And then he looked at me and said, perhaps you as a pastor need to touch it. Well my immediate instinct was, "Yes, I would love to do that. That would solve the problem." In all honesty, he asked me whether, whether perhaps we should put some oil on the cross, and then the cross would work. And I smiled at him and said, "Garrett, here's the thing. You've got Jesus in your pocket. You need to get him into your heart. Then it works. And he looked at me and said, I have no idea on how to do that. I said, well, let me explain on how you do that. I said, you're a strong built man. You've got some muscles, you're trained, you've got your own will. The only way you can accept Jesus in your heart is if you actually bow down before him and open up your hands and your heart and invite him to be part of your life. And he said, he wants to do that. I said, well, the only way we can do that together is that actually if we get off our couch here and we kneel down on the floor and we say a prayer and we invite Jesus to be part of your life and to move from the pocket into your heart. So I will never remember, uh, never uh, forget that scene. As we kneel down, I kind of kneel down very reverently and he goes down like a ninja fighter like next to me again I was a little bit afraid that what's going to happen here uh, in, in church today but we start praying and we make it very simple we say God we need some peace in this man's life I put my hand on his shoulder and it wasn't my miracle hand it was just my human hand praying for this man and I said God he needs peace in his life and I Ask you, Jesus, to move into his heart. And then after I prayed, he knelt down, and in very simple words, it wasn't a big theological prayer that he, uh, that he uttered next to me, but he, he said, Jesus, I need peace. Please come into my life. There's nothing more powerful for an adult man to kneel down before Jesus. There's nothing more powerful than for an adult woman to kneel down before Jesus. And since we have some teenagers here today, let me even say that to you, teenagers, or to you kids there's nothing more powerful than to kneel down before the king of kings. See, we all have our own ways on how we try to manage life. We all have our ways on how we try to cope with all the stuff that's happening in our lives, in our families, in our work. We all have our way. But that's where this endlessly wonderful story of Christmas can really make the biggest difference of our lives. If we recognize We as powerful people with our own strong wills can bow down before an even more powerful God who's made himself available in a manger as weak as a baby. So I'm going to leave you with a last drawing here, which is another scene. It's a painting that is a little bit earlier than the one by Leonardo da Vinci. This one is by Fra Angelico. It's also a famous painter back from Florence. It was painted uh, around 1438, so about 40 years earlier. That's why you could see Leonardo da Vinci's painting being so incredibly rich with all the details. Uh, Fra Angelici wa- was already ahead of his time with this painting, but the, of course Leonardo was much more advanced. But let me tell you why I, I cho- choose this painting here as, as, as the way to close the sermon. If you go and visit Florence, you have to marvel at this city. Florence is the most beautiful Renaissance city that you can ever imagine. There are so wonderful museums, palazzos, the cathedral, the baptistry, different churches, like the whole city is one big museum. And if you look deeper at it, there are different families that have constructed this city, and the most prominent of all of them is the Medici family. For 300 years, the Medici family basically ruled and reigned in Florence, Tuscany. And during that period, everything was built. So even now, five, 600 years later, everything that we marvel at was built exactly during that period in the 15th century. It was the building period of 100 years. During that 100 years, the most famous person of the city was a name, was a man by the name of Cosimo de Medici. He was the founding father of the whole Medici empire. He was a cloth merchant who had turned into a banker, had become extremely powerful and successful. Probably the richest man in Europe in the 15th century, incredibly wealthy and powerful. He commissioned the cupola over the cathedral. He built the Palazzo Medici Riccardi. He, um, he built so many wonderful things in the city. Everyone in the city respected him. Everyone loved him because he was using his wealth for great things and for good, good purposes. Now, he commissioned a monastery a Dominican convent called San Marco in the city of Florence. And he commissioned, a with his own money, not his bank's money, his own money, he had a convent totally redone. And then he commissioned a painter, Fra Angelico, to, to paint the different cells for the monks to spend the night. And you can visit these cells, and I call them cells because they're literally, they're like, two meters by two meters or two meters by three meters. These are really small places where the monks would sleep and spend the night. And he commissioned this artist who was already kind of a strong artist, Florengelike, to paint scenes of the gospel stories into the different cells. So actually the, the whole cell thing is a, is a whole museum by itself. And you can visit it and it's just unbelievable to think that a monk would have this as a, as a painting in their little cell. Now, out of all the cells that they were reserved for the monks, there was one where he asked that it would be kept for him. And in his cell, this scene was painted, the adoration of the magi. And what is the symbol? The symbol is kings bowing down before the king of kings. Now let me say it this way. Cosimo de Medici in his time, he was the king. He was the king. He was calling the shots. But biographers tell us that he would sneak out of his big palace on a regular basis and make his way to this little convent, San Marco, to spend the night in a little two-by-three-meter cell kneeling next to his bed in adoration of the King of Kings. There is nothing more powerful than for powerful human beings to recognize that there is a King of Kings. And the only way, the only way to approach the King of Kings is by bowing down and worshiping Him. Can I ask you to stand? We're we're gonna we're gonna sing a song here at the end of the service. But I I would uh, I would not do you all a favor if I wasn't gonna make an invitation here at the end of this service and at the end of this story for us all as powerful human beings as we're all kind of trying to find our way through this Christmas season and Advent season. So all trying to put aside our busyness and our laziness and our anxiousness and our worriness and take a moment in this holy place here. The only reason it's holy is because God has put this time and space apart for us to have an encounter with him as the most holy God. That we end this service in adoration and in worship, I've told you in the past that I used to be part of a church where at the at the um, at the stage at the at the altar stage we would have a a bench where we could literally come at the end of a service to kind of kneel down and pray after having heard the scriptures after having listened to the sermon to kind of respond back and kind of say, Yes, that's what I want to do. This is what I want to be. This is what I want to, This is how I want to live my life. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to bow down before the King of Kings. I know we don't have this here in church, but I, I think we, we can still find a way for us to make this Christmas Advent service a special service. So I, I want to ask you to bow your heads and pray with me today. Now I'm going to leave some time and space for you to utter your own prayer. And we've said at the beginning of the service, we even have a space up front here for people to come and pray if they want to pray with someone else together. But we want to take this moment where we just pause and say... that even though we're powerful as human beings with our own strong will with our own character, attitude wealth that we put that aside and we humbly make our way following the star following the wise men into this manger. And as we recognize the King of Kings, the baby Jesus, we just bow and we worship. Can I ask you to bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much today that You've brought uh, Pravish into my life and that he shared the story with me on how you've uh, adopted him as your son. As he was reading the scriptures and with tears in his eyes, he, he prayed to you. And I know that you want to do the same for every one of us here this morning as we're here in this worship service. Your heavenly Father, who stands there with wide open arms and who's willing to receive us as we make our journey to the manger, and as we, as we come and as we, as we become filled with joy over, over the grace and and over the wonder of Christmas, that you want to receive us this morning. We want to ask for forgiveness of our sins. We want to ask forgiveness for our proud behavior, for our wrongdoing, for our laziness, for our forgetfulness, for the harsh words we've said, for the bad attitude that we've had, for not loving our enemies let alone our neighbors. We want to ask forgiveness for thinking too much of ourselves. We want to ask forgiveness for being too wise in our own ways. We want to ask forgiveness for seeing the signs but not following the stars. Lord Jesus, I pray especially for those amongst us who May have been carrying you around in their, in their pocket for a long time, or you've been on some wall at home, a crucifix, as a symbol, but not as a reality in the heart. Pray that this very moment you may use this set apart time for, for us to make some space in our hearts to receive you, King Jesus. <coughs>